Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you were expecting an inflation show today because you listened to last week's episode and we mentioned that, I'm sorry. My computer had a meltdown while we were recording that show and we're going to have to come back to that in the future. But we have a great episode today that I think you're going to enjoy. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to On The Market. Today, we are going to wade into one of the age-old debates in real estate, cash flow versus appreciation. We'll also be doing a two truth and a lie news quiz, and we're revealing our top real estate investing market for 2022. Welcome back, everyone, to this episode of On The Market. Today, I am very grateful to have my friends James Daynard, Kathy Fecky, and Jamil Damji with me. How are you guys doing? Amazing. Wonderful. Doing well. Excited for the debate we're about to have. I love a good debate. She came ready. She came ready today. Kathy, it's ready. There's been a lot. There's <laughs> been a lot up. of trash talk between Kathy and Jamil before we start recording, just so everyone knows. So and it's real. They're gearing it up for a staged. fight. Yeah. No. No. She she texts me every once in a while, like, I hate your face. And I'm like, okay, well. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I love you in a dress for sure. Yes, but. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, Jamil, you might have to put that dress back on if Kathy beats you in the debate. Yeah. You know what? I, any excuse to put it on. 
actually. A red dress. <laughs> so <laughs> if you guys don't know what we're talking about, go check out Jamil's Instagram and you'll you'll understand. Yeah. <laughs> Before we jump into the debate that is forthcoming and I'm very excited for, we do need to go into our between the headline section, which is the section of the show where we talk about recent headlines that impact the world of real estate investors. And today, as we always do, we make a game out of it. And I have a new game for you guys. We're going to be playing Two Truths and a Lie, which personally I haven't played since I was in middle school, but I thought this was the perfect opportunity to bring it back out. All right. So I'm going to read you a headline and share some information with you. And you have to tell me which of the three statements I read is in fact false. All right. First one. In a recent episode, we talked about how back in 2021, rents grew at a staggering 15% year over year. And Redfin just came out with a pretty comprehensive report on rent data, updating all this information. And it shows that as of March 2022, the average across the United States was 17% rent growth. So it's actually increased since last time that we talked about this. There was all sorts of other data from this report. So I'm going to read you three statements. You tell me which one is false. First, Milwaukee saw rents drop nearly 10% from the year before. Second, none of the top 10 markets for rent growth were in the Northeast or Midwest. All of the top 10 were in the South or the West. And third statement, Portland, Oregon saw 40% rent growth year over year. James, let's start with you. Which one is false? Portland, 40% rent growth. I am going, I, I'm very familiar with Portland and I highly doubt that. Kathy? The fa- the false one is M- Milwaukee. All right, Jamil. Oh man, now I I kind of want to pick the one in the middle just because nobody did. But, but I'm actually going to go with what James had to say because my opinion is if rents went up that high in Portland, they'd burn it down. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, I Jamil, you should have stuck with your instincts because you were oh, all wrong. Oh, dang. <laughs> In dang. fact, the false one was that none of the top 10 markets were in the Northeast or Midwest. And I found this particularly interesting because most of the top 10 were actually in the New York region. So we saw number three was New York, New Brunswick, New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey, and Nassau County, New York all made the top 10. And Portland was number one, 40% year-over-year rent growth there. And I found that pretty interesting, too, that Milwaukee saw a 10% decline. There was only two markets that saw a 10% decline. That was Milwaukee uh, at 10% and Kansas City, which was just slightly negative. But the spread on that is crazy, right? Portland plus 40, Milwaukee minus 10? That blows my mind. Like, I I would have never... (laughs) 40% Forty percent rent growth in Portland. I mean, a portion of that city is still not operating. Yeah, that blows my mind. You know that that along with just the general sentiment in in Portland. I mean, look, it's an expensive place to live, but people there they 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 tend to be more on the you know liberal side of things, and they they would have the opinion. I would say I would think you know collectively that rent increase of forty percent might just be a little oppressive. You know, and so I'm I'm. It's shocking to me that rents have gone up that high in Portland, but you know what? It's Portland. 
with, with you know rent what, control I'm, and everything. Yes, yeah, it's, it's yeah. Yeah. surprising. I mean, you know, liberal Portland, anything forty percent rent is unsustainable. That, that there's there's something wrong here. Obviously, if if we're seeing this, and it's not just in Portland. You know, we have Orlando at thirty percent, Miami thirty three percent. You know, this is all over the country. We're seeing rent growing at a rate that uh, I think is is has to slow down, but is is a little bit concerning. All right, let's see if you guys can do better on the second one. I mean, <laughs> 0 for 3. Okay, the next question, we have recent data that came out recapping more of the March 2022 market and which areas grew the fastest. This is in terms of home price appreciation. So we just talked about rent. Now we're talking about home prices. Which of the following statements is false? Number one, Tampa, Florida had the highest appreciation in the year ending March 2022. Two, Three cities actually saw price declines month over month from February to March. Those were Baton Rouge, New Orleans, or Buffalo. Or over the last year, only Detroit, Michigan saw declines in the past year, year over year. Which of those three statements is false? Kathy, let's start with you. Oh, I think I'm going to go with the... Oh, it's maybe, maybe, maybe Detroit. I'm going to go with Detroit. Jamil? I was going to go with Detroit, too, but then Kathy did it. <laughs> no, she's right. I think I think the third statement is false. James? I'm going to go with Tampa is false. Enemies are joining forces on this, but so both <laughs> correct. Detroit, All in right. fact, did, Detroit did, in fact, see year-over-year appreciation, just like every single other major metro in the United States. There was not a single metric that saw declines from March 2021 to March 2022. We did see some markets start to see month-over-month declines, though, which is notable. Uh, Baton Rouge, New Orleans, and Buffalo did see small month-over-month declines, but something to pay attention to. And if you listen to our episodes where we picked the best housing market for 2022, this guy picked Tampa, Florida, and it did have the highest appreciation in March 2022. For the last question, I looked at a really cool new data set. It's the first time I ever looked at this, but the NAR has an affordability affordability distribution curve and score where it shows what areas, what metro areas or what states are the most and least affordable. So from that data set, which of these three statements is false? One, Idaho is the least affordable state in the United States. Two, Los Angeles is the least affordable city in the United States. Or three, West Virginia is the most affordable state in the United States. Jamil? I'm going to say statement number two is false. L.A.? L.A. All right. James? I'm actually going with that, too. The L.A. is not quite number one. So that is false. All right, Kathy, this is your is your chance to distance yourself from Jamil and pick something other than no, LA. No, I'm, I'm going three for three. Uh, Could be wrong. West Virginia? Uh, no, I'm going with um, Los LA. All right. None of you were correct on this one. Oh, it, this my one shocked me. Idaho is now the least affordable state in the United oh. States. And I guess after you saw these 40% increases in home prices over the last couple of years, that shocked me uh, more than california more than washington idaho now the least affordable state la is the least affordable metro area and i was kind of thinking about that la is such a big area it's kind of hard to like consolidate that into one area and understand it um, but actually ohio is the most affordable state in the u.s not west virginia 
All right. I'd say good job, but I think only out of the nine guesses, there was only two correct answers. So I'm going to say that I, I, I won that. I'm not going to award a winner. I think I won that by tricking yeah. you guys. So. House wins. House wins. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of how I House got into real estate. I, I, this is kind of how I got into real estate. I was bad at test taking, so I did real estate. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to... Look, I'm better at math than test taking. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for playing along. This is a fun way to understand what is going on in the housing market. But it is time for us to move on to our due diligence block where we're going to talk all about cash flow versus appreciation. We'll be right back after this. We know you've heard it before. Cash flow is getting very hard to find. There's always long distance investing, but you may be thinking, I don't have a team, enough experience, or the market knowledge to get in. That's where you're wrong. And it's also where Rent to Retirement comes in. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest out of state with confidence. They've got single family, multifamily, new build, and syndication opportunities across multiple markets. They even have bird deals with immediate equity. Rent to Retirement helps investors learn how to build a bulletproof business plan with the best investment and tax strategies around to help you reach financial freedom through real estate. There's no excuse not to get started in real estate investing when you have the right team and systems already in place. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Welcome back to On The Market. We are now going to our due diligence part of the show where we debate a big, broad topic that impacts the strategies and lives of real estate investors. And today, we are opening a can of worms. This is one of the greatest debates in all of real estate investing. We are going to talk about cash flow versus appreciation. I know Kathy and Jamil are set to face off here. So I'm just going to start with you, Jamil. What where do you stand in this debate Wait. on cash flow versus appreciation? Uh, 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 oh, he chose a, Kathy, he chose just talk a, over a him. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. You so, always want to counterpunch, Kathy. Counterpunch. Okay, okay. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna have an answer here, but it's not gonna be exactly the answer you're gonna want. Because I, I don't believe that cash flow or just simple appreciation is the answer. In fact, I think if you're investing just for cash flow, it's gambling. I think if you're investing just for appreciation, it's gambling. I believe in investing for forced appreciation. Okay, you need to be able to pick markets that A, are going to appreciate, but then also find properties that you can force appreciation by adding value to that situation. We can't be lazy investors here, right? And so if you're just looking for an opportunity to park your money, then of course, you know, hopefully appreciation will work. But guys, we've seen where situations like that don't work, right? You get a market crash, your appreciation is gone. You have a situation in a city and a big industry moves and your cash flow is gone because your tendency situations can change. So all of these events, and we watch this very unpredictable world where very unpredictable things happen. 
you cannot just decide that you're going to pick one of these two and put all of your eggs into that basket. It's, it's irresponsible. So my opinion, it's still appreciation, but you got to force it. So understand what a deal is and then pick that market right. Jamil, before we move on, and I, Kathy, I will let you have your, your say. Uh, can you just explain to everyone who's listening here what the difference between appreciation, let's call it market appreciation uh, in the traditional sense versus forced appreciation is? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I buy, let's just choose Phoenix, Arizona, because I live here, right? So I, I come to Phoenix, Arizona, and, I, and I'm buying a property here. I can have you know $200,000 to deploy in Phoenix, and say I just go into the MLS and I randomly pick a property and I buy it. And I say, okay, I'm going to hold this property. Hopefully, I'm going to hold it for 10 years and it'll appreciate in value. And in 10 years, I'm going to have my property is going to be worth more money than what I paid for it. That's appreciation. That's market appreciation. Over time, the market will go up, hopefully, and you should be able to see a return. Forced appreciation is when you're actually adding value to that property in order for it to appreciate. So before you even get into it, you're buying it at a cost basis that is below base, right? And so, for instance, if I'm going to deploy $200,000 again in Phoenix, Arizona, I'm going to deploy that $200,000 in Phoenix, hoping to buy something that's possibly worth $300,000 so that I know that if I can force some appreciation, no matter what happens to the market, I get a market crash, I get a correction, whatever interest rates go up, uh, demand starts to slow down, I'm still going to have an opportunity to make money. I'm still going to have an appreciation opportunity there because I bought the property correctly. All right. Thank you for that that explanation. It's super helpful. Kathy, where do you fall? Hands down, hands down, the way you create massive wealth is through appreciation, period. That's how you do it. And that's why Californians are so loaded. That's why Californians are changing other markets because they made so much money that they can go to other other markets that are still cheap because they have not appreciated. And and the same is true for New York, same is true for Los Angeles. So what is it that makes those cities so appreciating, right? What why why do prices keep going up? Now, I I there's a caveat that uh, sometimes these mar- these markets are more volatile for sure. So you don't want to buy at the top and then write it down and then have to wait for it to come back. It will come back, but it's just a longer haul. So if you bought in 2008, you'd be waiting till 2018 or whatever to get your money back, but then it takes off again. So if you if you time it well in an appreciating market, that is where great wealth is amassed. It's not for everybody. Not everyone can do it. But hands down, that's how you create the most money. And then, and I mean, I know this because I'm born and raised in California, and I've seen it for 50 years. You know, for five decades, there's been lots of recessions, there's been ups and downs. But people in California built their wealth by just living in a home. They didn't force any appreciation; they just lived there. So those those markets are are special because they're international. There's people from all over the world coming. They're world class. And, uh, and there's barriers. You've got the ocean, right? So you can't build out that far. And you've got mountains. And usually in cities like that, there's sensitivity issues. So lots of limitation on building. And it costs a lot to build. So that is where, again, if you're going to time it well, just nothing compares. Nothing compares. When I, when I first moved to Malibu, I moved here in the downturn because it was actually much cheaper than, than Northern California. And I couldn't believe there were houses that went down by millions of dollars 
But if somebody was wealthy enough to buy that, it went up millions of dollars. So wealth is created that way. Again, it's not for everybody. Not everyone can do it. It just depends on uh, where you are in life. So if you if you're in a big city and you're making big money, that's usually people who salaries tend to be higher, uh, then, you know, do what you can to live in a place, rent out the rooms and ride that appreciation up uh, so that then you can 1031 exchange into a cash flow market once you have the money. When you have lots of money, cash flow markets are a lot more interesting. It's harder. It's much harder to build wealth in a cash flow market because cash flow is kind of limited, really. Um, you'll you'll get, it's great if you're wanting to live off that cash flow, but a lot of people getting into real estate aren't in that position where they need the cash flow. They have jobs and you should have a job. You know, if you're 25 years old and wanting to retire, I'm sorry, you still have work to do in this world. There's there's a gift you are here to bring. You're not supposed to retire at 25. Um, you know, so usually people retire around a, a little bit older, 50, 60, when they've done their thing in the world. And at that time, what a great time to, to cash flow because now you retire and you, you live off that income. But if you can make money doing your job, doing your thing in the world and invest for the long term, such that at a later date, man, you're rolling in the dough and then cash flow makes more sense. And again, I've seen that for years. That's what we've been helping busy professionals do is, you know what? Hey, you don't need the cash flow right now. Build for the future, buy for the future in areas where there's a really good chance of appreciation for various reasons. You know, maybe maybe it's hard to build in that area or there's like Boise, there's mountains. You can't build everywhere. It's a sensitive area. That's one of the reasons why it's going up. And in, in Texas, there's a, a lot, it's a lot easier to build. So uh, typically there hasn't been a lot of appreciation there, although we certainly have seen seen it recently. So there you go. There are my thoughts. She said she bought that property in Malibu <laughs> when the market tanked, right? When the market tanked. And so all those people that, that sold when the market tanked in that appreciating, you know, state of California where it's all glitter and gold, right? They all took it in the keister. I'm just saying Okay, that if you if you follow what Kathy's saying, you get rich when you die, or you've got to time a market cycle. That's it. Well, is that what you're saying, Kathy? That it, that to get appreciation, you have to be able to time the market successfully. Uh you you. It's better. It's certainly better to time the market. It, any property you buy, it needs you need to be able to hold it, right? You you have to be able to hold it and not get in trouble like some people did. There was a lot of speculation back in 2005 and people were buying stuff they really couldn't afford and, and didn't have to qualify. I was a mortgage broker at the time and I'm, I'm not kidding, I've said this on past shows. People would come in to our office and say, hey, we've got $5 million loans, Nina loans, no income, no assets, no proof of anything. Um, these were the kind of loans that were, were going out. So of course, when the payments adjusted, people couldn't afford those payments. So if you're locked into a fixed rate, people, there were plenty of people who held their properties during that time. And in fact, were making plenty of money from the rents because more there were more renters, right? When, when, when there's a recession, there's, there tends to be more renters. So it's again, a buy and hold thing. You, if you're going to buy in an appreciating market, you have to be able to hold it. That's the key. So yeah, I agree with you. You can definitely lose money. Uh, would I be happy buying in 2009, oh, 2008, right before the market crashed in California, if you were living there and planning to hold it? Because in that 10 years, now you've 
you've paid that down. You've paid you've paid down your mortgage, and over time, in those markets, in those world class markets, prices do bounce back, and they appreciate more than anywhere else. Yeah, and it's not always timing either. You know, it's forecasting the right area. You know, I, I hear a lot of that, like, oh, it's timing. Timing is everything, and that is true. But just forecasting as you're looking down at your portfolio is so important when you're evaluating anything. And if you forecast things correctly, that's how you build that wealth with that appreciation. So what do you mean, James? Can you explain to everyone what you mean by the difference between forecasting and timing the market? Yeah, it's I hear a lot like, oh, real estate is lucky and it's timing. And that is very, very true. I, I think we've timed a lot of flips recently um, and hit it right. But that's also in a short-term window. I, I think timing's everything when I'm looking at a 12 to 24-month period. That, that's in and out. And when the, the question of cash flow and appreciation is such an important topic, and it's a question that every investor should be asking themselves before they buy that next deal. What is their long-term goals? You know, it could be balance in their portfolio where they get high cash flow and they get the appreciation, which is the way I prefer to do things. Like really look at my real estate portfolio is like, you know, like the pie chart that the financial planners always show you. Like, hey, your, your stocks go here, they go into bonds, they go, there's different risk factors that you can kind of balance out. But as you look at building your portfolio, where we've made all of our wealth was buying in 2008, 9, 10, 11. The cash flow was not good during those times. We were paying higher rates, rents were not going up at the time, but we purchased the right type of property in the right areas that we could forecast down the road. What does forecasting have to do with that is we were tracking areas with path of progress, zoning upside. Where are the growth areas? And if you buy in those areas, and like what Kathy's talking about, like buying in California even too, those are areas that where people want to live. There's a lot of business growth there. Quality of living is really good in a lot of the spots too, besides how expensive it is. And that's where the money goes. And so this appreciation factor, whether you're buying quality of life or zoning upside, you know, a lot of where we hyper- grew our portfolio was buying single family houses with the right zoning, knowing that it's not worth that much today, but a path of progress is bringing the population there. And then all of a sudden we're turning them into development sites and selling off the development and we're 5Xing what we initially put in in a very short amount of time. Cash flow is great because you can you can kind of create, uh, you know, for me, like when I'm looking at cash flow, I'm looking at how much liquidity I have, how much do I want to sit there and how much is it going to pay me, but that's going to give me a more steady return. The appreciation is where you can build that rapid wealth where, you know, we took 15 single family homes and we turned it into over 100 units. That was buying an appreciating asset that we could 1031 exchange and kind of increase our portfolio. So uh, I, I'm an appreciation guy if you want to build wealth, but it really depends on where you're at in your investing career. And if you want to be more passive and less risky, then go for the income. If you're younger, like I was when I got started building my portfolio, I went for value add where I could create equity day one and then also get the appreciation factor because those are two different things. Walking into the uh, the equity and then the appreciation is just buying the right property in the right location that has the right potential of growth. All of you are pretty active real estate investors and you do this full time. So I'm surprised to hear you say that because that none of you really select cash flow because I would be curious, you know, you obviously have expenses on a month to month basis. Are you also trying to find supplement cash flow, but you just prioritize that less than appreciation? Or are you really not even looking at cash flow at all? Jamel, let's go to you on that. So this is a really great question. And I did some mathematics the other week and I looked at right now, 
my wholesale business generates me a million dollars a year in income, okay? I would need $27 million worth of property to generate a million dollars a year in income. And it would have taken me a lifetime to generate that, right? I don't even have to go into my office anymore. That's how passive it is. Now, I still do. I'm still involved and I love being a part of it, but it's not necessary. I'm not required to be there. And so for me, I look at real estate as an opportunity, a vehicle, of course, right? But I'm building a business around the real estate. I'm building a business and I'm looking at assets as opportunities to get in, get out, create cash, create opportunity, but then build something that's just beyond the, the sticks, that's beyond the foundations, right? I'm, I'm, I'm building opportunity. I'm building growth potential for other people. And by adding that value to the marketplace, I generate cash flow for myself. And so for me, having a company that A, generates me that kind of cash that I can one day take an exit from was just way more of an investment than buying houses. But so you're saying you don't essentially need cash flow from properties because you have a business a wholesaling. Correct. Correct. That That is surrounded. That is basically... Uh, a, a part of real estate investing. I mean, my wholesaling business is real estate. I'm buying and selling paper essentially, but I'm generating cash to do that. And because I've built a business around that, I haven't found it necessary to have to go and buy a house. Look, I can buy a house. I can get a mortgage on that house and I can cash flow $500 a month, $700 a month. Guys, how long, how many, how many $500 a month checks do you need to really be financially free. Think about it, right? It takes a long time and it takes a lot of grit and it takes a lot of effort to get to that point where you have a really incredible lifestyle from stacking small $500 checks a month. It's just not appealing to me, right? I'm looking at this as an opportunity to change my life, to do something that I can actually get out there into the world and, and have all the freedom I want. And it's not gonna be coming from you know, onesie twosie houses and taking three or $400, you know, checks on my, on my, on my rents. It just doesn't excite me. Jamil, I just really feel like you're agreeing with James and me. I thank you for letting us win that debate. However, now I'm going to debate what you just said. <laughs> Please do. Please do. Um, I'm going to debate our debate, which is, it all depends on on your dreams and and everybody's dreams are different. Jamil wants to fly first class. Uh, but maybe I, I've interviewed people on my podcast who um, my very close friends that live down the street, they are really comfortable living on less because they want more time and freedom. So they're in their, uh, she's in her late 20s and he's in his early 30s and they saved every single penny. They worked really hard, but saved all that money and lived very cheaply. And then were able to buy enough cash flow properties in Detroit, ironically, uh, that ha give them enough cash flow, which is, I don't know, six, $7,000 a month. That's enough for them. And in that way, they are retired basically, and they're traveling, they go to Africa, they go to Asia, they're doing whatever they want because they have enough income coming in because they did work and their, I guess their needs were much lower. My daughter's in Asia right now, and she just told me she was getting a $5 massage and a $2 meal. So, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of money to live a little bit more of a creative lifestyle like that. So depend, again, it all just comes down to depending on what you want to do with your time. If you want to fly first class and have fancy cars and whatever, Kathy, Jamil Kathy, does wear dresses on street corners. 
<laughs> have you ever flown? Have you ever flown to Africa, Coach Kathy? I have. Have you ever? Um, no, I hell. just flew it, it's, first class to it's Spain for the first time, and it was awesome. You're yeah, not going it's way to better. Spain. It's you're you're not going to Spain in first class on four hundred dollar a month cash flow checks. I I'm I'm sorry. You're well, not. I did. You know how I did that? Well, that was through putting all of my business expenses on my credit card and getting points. That's how I got that. I can't spend the money. I just can't do it. But I did spend the points. <laughs> well, I think I think this is a really good point, Kathy, because not everyone is capable or even wants to start a, an entire business. Some people are really passionate about what they do. For example, if you are really motivated by the purpose of your job and you want to stay in that job, or for some people, I, I do think $1,000 a month would make a really large difference in many people's lives. And I don't think we should discount that or overlook that fact because, you know, you know, when I first got started in real estate investing, I was waiting tables and I was making a couple hundred bucks a month in sweat equity. And, and it made a huge difference to me at that time. And it also gave me uh, a lot of confidence and a lot of, I, I should say, like, I felt more secure in taking more risks with the rest of my career because I could fall back on that cash flow should anything happen. I went to grad school. I was able to pay for that a lot of part because I was able to generate cash flow. To Kathy's point, I think it really just depends on where you are in your life and where you are in your career. So I, I'd like to turn the conversation a little bit to that. So James, let's let's I'd like to ask you, who should like are there types of investors that you think should be looking at cash flow? And if so, how should they be thinking about balancing cash flow at, across their entire portfolio? Yeah, and it, it comes back to where are you at in life? We all want to be the investor chasing cash flow because that means we've made it, right? We've saved up enough liquidity. We can now live off our liquidity, put our money on safe assets and watch it grow problem is you got to get that lump sum of money right and you got to work it backwards like how much do you need to kind of live off of it uh, whether it's a $500 a month cash flow or maybe it's substantially more um, but you know for when I'm sitting down with clients or when I'm looking at things or even balancing my own portfolio it always comes down to what how much income am I trying to subsidize right so I'm looking at my whole portfolio and going okay with this amount of liquidity I can't have it all in high appreciating assets if I do that my cash flow may lag and also I'm susceptible to a lot more risk right like going into the next three to four years we might not see as much appreciation the banks are going to control that a little bit and that's okay because as long as you're riding it out on the 10-year basis but you can balance it out so right before rates started spiking, I looked at my whole portfolio and I go, okay, where am I at? Am I in the right positions? And, and I looked at how much cash flow, I set my monthly cash flow goal. It was, you know, I wanted to be, A, my minimum cash flow is always at 10% on any property. If I'm not making 10% on that, that deal, I'm not buying it. Um, in addition to, I'm always making sure I'm walking into a walk-in margin. If there is no walk-in margin, there's no value add for me, I'm not buying that deal anyways. Um, and so th those are my two requirements. But then based on that, I look at how much liquidity I've saved up over the last 18 years and I put that to work. And you know, some might be in real estate notes, some are in holdings. And in those holdings, I'm then breaking that up. I wanna have cash flow that is always gonna cover my portfolio payment. Because I did learn in 2008 when I, had I was too tight on my 
my cash flow and I was only chasing appreciation, when there was that correction, it hurt. And I had to pay for my portfolio. I do not want to be paying for my portfolio at that time. So in my portfolio, I have some high cash flow items. There's like 30% of it is high cash flow deals where I'm clearing good you know, I'm at 15 to 20% cash on cash return. These are in areas that have steady growth. Not They're not going to give me that huge value pop. And then in my other 70%, because I am still in a growth setting, I want, I'm want i not at where I want to be yet. It, uh, I need to probably double my liquidity position to get to my passive goal of where I want to be. And so I have the other ones, the other 70%, I put in higher appreciating ones where I moved money around. I went into future development sites. I went into Path of Progress locations. In Washington, our local government announced that they are going to upzone anything close to transit and freeways. I started looking at purchasing properties in those areas because, you know, they might not get upzoned tomorrow, but they're going to get upzoned in the next 10 years because they just told me. And so moving those things around, you can, you can protect yourself by looking at, okay, what's my total monthly nut? How much extra cash flow do I need in case there's any sort of correction, whether it's interest rates rising or rents dropping for whatever reason, even though rents look like they're going to raise? And then it covers my it, my cash flow pays for any kind of negative or close negative on my high appreciating. So it's just you let your portfolio kind of feed itself. Um, and, and it really comes down to if you're looking at cash flow, I think you're at, you, you have done well in life. You want steady returns, and if you're trying to get to that next level, then you want to buy value-add, discounted properties that you can get the upside on. I mean, I feel like everyone's just saying what I said. <laughs> In one way or another, but that's fine. Do you, want, do you want us to just give you a crown, Jamil? No, no, no. No. <laughs> no, no. I want Kathy to have it. Are, are there any scenarios where you think that people, new investors, people who want to retire early, are there any scenarios where you think cash flow is a viable strategy? Absolutely. Uh, like James, James nailed it, actually. First, you know, beginning investors, when you're just getting in and you're looking for an opportunity Financial freedom is is gonna come to you through cash flow. It's like we, you know, like when you're a baby, you're a baby. You need specific things. You need cash flow. That's the sustenance that's gonna keep you going. Then you have opportunity to take risk. You can go do other things, and then just like all things, you become a baby again when you're super rich, and now you want cash flow again, right? So you're gonna go back to that situation where, look, I've made twenty million dollars. I'm gonna go park it in cash flow assets, and I'm just gonna live off my my cash flow. Great. Great, but I think in the beginning and in the end, that's when cash flow is great. In the middle, it's appreciation all day and forced appreciation, not just appreciation, forced appreciation. That's an interesting way of putting it. I, I've always said that cash flow really is ideal only for people who want to retire soon. And it's funny about the cycle because I think a lot of people who are in their 20s or 30s, they start working and they're like, oh, this kind of sucks. I really want to retire. And so they start <laughs> going after cash flow because they want an alternative. And I know for myself, a lot of what has motivated me is not that I want to retire, but I want the option to retire. Like I don't want to have to work if I want to take a year off, if I want to go do something else. I've always wanted that. And so I pursued cash flow in the beginning of my career. And then of course, as people age and they really do want to retire and actually start working, that is also, in my opinion, at least a good time to pursue cash flow. So I think we're all sort of in agreement that early in your investing career, late in your investing career, it could be a good time to go after cash flow. Kathy, you said something earlier I want to get back to. That is, if you build a lot of wealth, you can translate that into cash flow later. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I think Jamil and James both said it, that if you have a bunch of money, uh, wh- what better place to put it for a yield if you're wanting a return than in cash flowing property in more affordable markets? So it takes money, though. And if you're just starting out, there it's going to be a little bit harder. It might be that you just save enough money to to buy one house, or you you learn how to wholesale so that that's but that's a business, right? That's that's creating a business. Uh, fix and flipping is a business, but investing tends to be more buy and hold, right? You, you're you're not doing much with it. It's more passive, not completely passive, but you basically bought a building, a warehouse, and an apartment, a single family property or a business. Maybe you buy a business that runs itself um, and and you're not having to put a lot of your time into it. It is generating cash flow. And in the case of real estate, also paying a loan down for you. So when you're young and you're getting started, oh my gosh, you guys, like, oh, you know, just buy, save your money. Don't spend it all on, on, Coachella, although maybe once, uh, it's okay. You gotta live once. See, Co- Coachella. <laughs> okay. Um, Coachella is fun. Get a free <laughs> ticket somehow, uh, but you know, invest it because then you will be able to retire early. Because you, if you can find properties that cash flow and appreciate, to me that's that's the bingo. If you can find areas where all the metrics are there, like like James was saying, this is my this is my thing. Finding the areas where the people are going, where the jobs are going, but it hasn't taken off yet. It's still somewhat affordable in that market. Then you get both. Then you get both, and it's usually not too expensive. For example, I, I mentioned when we first started buying in Dallas oh, 17 years ago, the properties, we were buying brand new, no forced appreciation. I'm, I'm, I don't have the time for that. A lot of people don't have time to fix things up. So I just bought a new, brand new home. I didn't have to do a darn thing with it. It was $140,000 for a brand new home in Dallas, and it rented for $1,500 a month. And we knew that a new freeway was coming into that area that was going to make the commute to jobs 20 minutes instead of an hour having to go around a lake. And we knew that jobs were, were coming in in droves. So it just made sense. Like, well, if my if the appreciation doesn't happen, it's okay. We're we're still covering all our costs, and we're getting all the tax benefits from this, um, and the loan is getting paid down by the tenant. But if the appreciation happens, whoa, bonus! And it did because those metrics were in place. There are still opportunities like that today. It, when you really search the areas where people are going, and let's face it, jobs and people go where it's affordable. That's what we're seeing. Jobs, you know, employers are saying, I don't want to pay all this all this rent. I'm going to go to Austin or I'm going to go to Birmingham or, you know, wherever. And Salt Lake City and and where it's more attractive for business to do business, right? That's why Texas took off. They gave so many tax benefits to businesses so that businesses move there. So look for states that attract business and aggressively try to attract business because that will attract people. But the housing takes a while to to get up and running along with commercial and everything else. It's really the jobs that can come first and, and the infrastructure to support that. So if you can find those areas, buy cheap, cheap enough. If you're in the $200,000 range, which is still possible, even less, there's areas where you can still buy properties for less than that. That's $40,000. You can do that. You can save that kind of money 
Or if you do the forced appreciation, you put no money, right? Because you just refi and get all your money back out and then go do it again. That's how that's how you can really build a, a beautiful portfolio. And, you know, r- r- real quick, what kind of Kathy touched on is that is the real estate great lie that you can't get both. You can get both. You can get cash flow and high appreciating markets. I mean, look at opportunity zones. That's why that was set up. You were buying them a little bit cheaper. The cash flow was good. And it's an opportunity zone where there's money coming because of the tax benefits. So you just have to buy right. But you don't have to pick one or the other. You can do both. It's a matter if you want to do the work to get both. I think that's a good example of why experienced investors all use, or at least I do, use IRR, internal rate of return, as their metric of choice because it's a way to combine appreciation and cash flow into a single metric to measure the total amount of wealth that you're building. I just want to say one thing. We just closed our single-family rental fund, and it was really educating to me. It was really um, enlightening because all of these years I've been telling people, you know, buy some in your portfolio, buy some really high cash flow properties. They probably won't appreciate. And then offset that with high growth properties that, that don't cash flow at all, maybe even negative, although I don't recommend that, but that there's a, there's a real upside. You could tell that there's going to be an upside and just balance your portfolio out that way. And then you're diversified and all that. That's been my, my thing. And then we did it with our single family rental fund, which we just closed out. We've had it for five years. And we, we bought in Alabama, we bought in Ohio, in Michigan, and Florida, and Georgia. So we, we kind of the Southeast was our growth markets, kind of lower cash flow. And, uh, you know, in the Midwest was, was our full cash flow. We didn't expect any appreciation. We have just sold those properties. We're closing out the fund. And I can tell you the returns. Like, it's clear. Uh, the Ohio ones, 7%. Florida, Alabama was 16%. And the, the Florida properties were 35%. Okay, but that that's a good question. That's a good segue to the last part of this discussion I want to get to. We just went on the one of the longest bull runs in housing prices in the history of the United States over the last 12 years. So there might be people listening and it might be true that it is easy to say that appreciation wins because we just had this crazy amount of appreciation over the last couple of years. James, do you think appreciation is still the way to go in today's market? Uh, I think both. Yes, I think you can still, depending on how long you want to keep these properties, you can still forecast out path of progress on a 10-year basis. I I still am in going after high appreciating markets. But at the same time, you can can track both. You know, there's certain metrics that, that, you know, like right now I've been using the um, price, uh, price to rent ratio. That's actually what I'm tracking. I'm looking at expensive markets because I'm on the West Coast and the, and the median home pricing is soared, right? Like what you said, it went on a bull run. They're up 20, 30, 40% in these markets. And, and you know, you can, even though the, the housing cost is high, you can actually track to see what's the affordability of rent versus median home pricing. And that can give you rapid growth factors. And so, you know, when I'm trading things around right now, I'm still going after good locations because the, a lot of the good locations, depending on what the metrics say, have the most potential and rent growth too. So you can actually hit the cash flow at the same time. Um, I am, I have over the last 12 months definitely repositioned. I got into better long-term five to 10 year deals because, you know, the ones that I currently had, I felt were kind of maxed out. So I repositioned those. And then I have been chasing higher cash flow or higher high growth for cash flow. You know, I want to know where the markets are, where the rents are below market. 
And just like anything, right? That's how you buy value add, right? I'm buying an asset below the appraised value. That's a win. So if I'm also buying assets where they're performing well below the median uh, rent metrics, that that's going to have that same value add pop on that. And so you can you can do both. Right now, I am tracking cash flow. I am also trying to get more cash flow in my portfolio because I do think inflation is going to eat up some of my cash flow and different expenses. You know, I might have higher maintenance costs. Uh, property management costs could go up. But my, my operating costs, I'm projecting to go up. And so the more cash flow I can get in, I can also offset those costs. Because again, the last thing I want to do is have a portfolio where I'm stuck feeding that thing over some some kind of transitionary time. I want it to pay for itself and pay for itself in a healthy way. And, um, you know, so you just really want to balance it out and, and make sure that you have both in there. I'm with you, James. I'm doing something similar, just trying to get out of uh, a couple of properties where, I think they've seen great appreciation. They might go up more, but they don't cash flow that well. And looking for things that are cash flowing a little bit more. Uh, I do think that we are, there's a very good chance that we're heading for a recession in the next couple of years. The Fed has made that sort of clear. Um, and, you know, want to put myself in a position rebalancing my portfolio a little bit to be a little more cash flow heavy than where I've been over the last couple of years. Yeah, just prepare and everything will be okay. You know, forecast, prepare, put that plan in place, move all your pieces right now, guys. Don't wait too long to move. Yes. Like, yes. You want to audit your portfolio, look at the performance. Is there any more upside or are you happy with the cash flow? If not, trade it out for something else, get it done now, and then then you can just ride out whatever wave we got coming our way. On our end, because again, our we're in the business of real estate, we're in the business of buying and selling. So for us, how we position our cash is super important, right? Where we're putting our cash, how we're how we're placing it, where we're where we're closing on deals, where we're investing in infrastructure to build out new corporate stores and whatnot. That's that's truly where our investment is being made right now. And it's following along the same lines of what Kathy was talking about earlier and what James was talking about earlier. And 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 even you in this these cash flow markets, that's where we're putting heavy investment in our wholesale business because we see great opportunity. Just like Kathy had said, go where the jobs are going, go where there's a fill affordability. That's where we're placing bets. But from the wholesale standpoint, we understand there's going to be a great opportunity for us to trade there. So we're building infrastructure so that we can set ourselves up to do heavy trading as the market starts to fluctuate. And and as you said, Dave, it, it's an engineered recession. It's coming. So we just got to be prepared for it. Move your pieces like James is saying now. Now is the time. If you wait, you are going to pay for it. All right, Kathy. Last word on the cash flow appreciation debate. You just sold off an entire portfolio. Are you going to adapt your strategy for the next thing you do, or what are you thinking? You know, it was just in the offering documents that we would sell it after five years. I would have much rather have kept it. Uh, we just had to follow, you know, the, the business plan, right? Um, so, yeah, I would have kept it because those homes that made all that money, those those were new homes. I mean, it's it's just so funny because it's, it's not really fancy. It's not sophisticated investing at all. These were just new homes that we bought in Florida for the fund that did that did, did the best. So, and that's kind of been my thing for 20 years is keeping it easy because there's a lot of people who are busy. They like their jobs. They're good at their jobs. They make a lot of money. They want to invest it. They don't have the time to be an active investor. So sometimes, you know, they're not going to get as good a deal as someone who is a more active investor. But over time, it, it makes sense. So, I think that the last word is for sure, we've talked about this, we are in a changing market, changing tides. 
the the Fed is aggressively raising rates. Just a few months ago, there was talk that it wasn't going to be so aggressive, just a little bit. Now there's talk that, no, they're going hardcore to fight inflation. And, uh, and so we don't really know where we're going to end up. We don't know if they're going to take their time on, if they're going to go uh, raise rates till we end up in a deep recession or just a, a soft one. Um, Fannie Mae came out with their new predictions and it was just going to be a gentle recession. So who knows? We won't know till we get there. But what I do know, having been through several really bad recessions, close to depression, the Great Recession is uh, as close to the Great Depression as any, uh, and then watching my dad go through those, is that people still, again, prefer to live indoors. That, you know, that's the bottom line. So if we're talking about housing, whether people own or rent, there's still going to be people that would like to have a roof over their head. So no matter how bad things get, you will probably have a pool of renters. The question is, are you in an, do you have the ability to lower rents if it comes to that? Uh, and, and in the case of 2008, we actually didn't. Our rents actually went up because there was more people chasing rental property. Uh, but, you know, if there was a recession and people lost their jobs, could you lower the rent a little bit and still be okay? It all comes down to reserves and your ability to hold that property. So when you guys were talking about having everything in place, to me, that's really making sure you have about 12 months reserves for each property so that if you are running into problems, you've got like a pool of money, just like a business. You know, we there's so many times I want to put the reserves for our business to work and invest it. It has to be in like really short-term stuff. But, you know, we got employees to play, to pay. If things slow down, we need reserves to pay them, right? You have to have that reserve. So if you treat your your real estate like a business, which it, you should, um, you'll, you'll get through it just fine if you are in low-cost, long-term debt, plenty of reserves, and and hopefully have taken care of, of the property. That's the other thing. You don't want any surprises on on repairs, right? So having really good insurance and uh, and making sure that you've got really good property management to make sure that uh, the, the home is being cared for along the way. I love that advice because a cash flow often is seen as sort of defensive. You know, you want to make sure that you have cash flow so you can hold on to your property in a downturn. But I think it's important to know that also just having reserves, even if you don't, even if it doesn't come from cash flow, if it comes from your W-2 job, if it comes from a flip that you just did or a wholesale that you just did, that is another way that you can give yourself that uh, confidence and that that cushion in case things don't go bad. I'm also considering putting down a little bit more than 25% on deals right now on a longer term because that will lower my payment, give me just a little bit more cash flow to sustain what might come. Again, as Kathy said, we don't know, but if you do want to be more defensive, those are a couple different options for you. All right, that is it for our due diligence section. Thank you all so much for this great debate. Ooh. I think we actually agreed more than <laughs> I thought we were going to. Yeah, it's strange. Yeah, we try to fight, but we just can't. <laughs> All right, Kathy and Jamelia. I love still, you, Kathy. Still friends. I love yeah, you too. She's, she's the best. Oh, you're the best. All right, we'll be right back after this. We we are going to reveal the best housing market in America for 2022, as voted on by the Bigger Pockets community. We are back for our crowdsource section of the show where we interact with all of you 
our loyal listeners. I guess I could call them loyal, right? This is episode four right now, four or five. <laughs> so if they've come back four or five times, that's pretty loyal. Yeah, you're loyal. I'm still waiting for my first groupie, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> We'll get Everybody one, flood James. James's DMs and let him know that you're his groupie. <laughs> I'm your groupie, James. I- I'm your first. I'll be actually, your first. Actually, I'll James, I did a I did an Instagram takeover for Bigger Pockets yesterday, and one I I did like an Ask Me Anything, and you know I'm like the data deli on Instagram. People ask me sandwich questions all the time, but someone asked me what your favorite <laughs> sandwich was, which maybe that's your oh, first wow. groupie. Someone really wanted to know about Ooh. you. My favorite sandwich? Yeah. Wow, I, you know, I, I am definitely like a spicy chicken. Mm. Uh, it's, it's anything spicy chicken, I'm into. That's a very, very good choice. For uh, always grilled, I, I try to stay away from the fried. I, I drink too much Rockstar. I want to make sure I'm somewhat <laughs> balanced out. It's a, I try to eat clean, drink too much fuel. Eat clean, that's, drink. Rockstar. That's very admirable because, like, a fried Nashville hot chicken sandwich. Mm. It's pretty Ooh, good. so good. I mean, don't I definitely prefer the fried. I, I'll take fried all day long. All right. Well, if you guys listen to our second episode, we picked some of the top markets in the United States. James, unfortunately, you weren't here for this episode, but you can be Henry's proxy because he picked a few. And if you recall, just as a reminder, we had eight markets entering the bracket. Henry selected Cleveland and Northwest Arkansas. I picked Tampa and San Antonio. Jamil picked Austin and Denver. And Kathy had Salt Lake and Charlotte. So we pitted these all up against each other. People voted on the Bigger Pockets Instagram. So if you want to be a part of any of these social media contests that we're doing, make sure to follow Bigger Pockets and all of us on Instagram. And what happened was a little disappointing for me and for Henry, who's not here. But Henry and I didn't even get one of our markets out of the first round. So the way it worked out was Charlotte, Kathy's picked Cleveland for Henry. Austin, Jamil beat me in Tampa. Denver, Jamil again beat Henry in Northwest Arkansas. And Salt Lake beat San Antonio. So Jamil and Kathy, you, you both beat me and Henry won. So congratulations. You had all four of the final four. Wow. Well done, Kathy. We're, we're totally in sync. In the next round, we had Charlotte versus Austin and we had Ooh. Salt Lake versus Denver. So it was you two against each other twice. And I have to say... Jamil won both of those. It was a Denver, yeah, it was a Denver versus Austin showdown. How do I beat myself? <laughs> we'll get you a, we'll get you a gold add to silver medal for this. And Kathy will get you a bronze one. All right. Uh, so it was a Denver versus Austin showdown. Do you guys have any guesses who won? I'm going Austin. Austin. It was Austin in a landslide. It was like 70 to 30% Austin as the best housing market in America. A couple of recordings ago, I was there looking around. It is going wild there. So I'm not surprised to hear that. But curious what you, you know, given the conversation today, you know, the voters picked pretty high appreciation markets as someone who invests primarily in Denver, who is just in Austin looking, not exactly cash flow markets. So it seems like voting, um, people mostly picked appreciation markets. What do you think of that? Makes sense to me. I mean, I, I think a lot of people are picking this based on their, their past 12 to 24 months of real estate, right? It's, people do tend to go like 
they, they live in the recent. So, you know, I think that's probably why people picked it more. You know, they, they kind of forget the, the long term over. Um, but, you know, I think Austin's got massive job growth. Um, it, it's going to continue to expand out. I am a guy that goes where the jobs are. And, and I think it's going to keep skyrocketing along with our Seattle market as well. I think uh, wherever, whatever Elon Musk does, other people follow. He moved there. He moved Very his company there, point. right? Yeah, that's a, that's a big one. And Austin's really cool. It is a lot of fun. Very good barbecue. I had a great time down there. So no surprise there. Thank you to everyone who voted on our best housing markets in the U.S. We will do this again next year and we'll we'll revisit and see which ones actually won. Thank you guys for listening to On The Market. We'll see you all next week. On The Market is created by Dave Meyer and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Edited by Joel Esparza. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. Special thanks to Lisa Scheuer, Eric Knutson, Danielle Daly, and Nathan Winston. The content on the show On The Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. Investing in small multifamily properties is probably the most popular niche in the entire Bigger Pockets community, and there's a good reason for that. You can put as little as 3.5% down and own up to four units. So just think about that for a second. You can house hack where you live in one of the units, but in addition to having a place to live, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month. You have four kitchens and bathrooms that you could add value to to build equity. You could also turn one or more of the properties into a short-term rental or a medium-term rental. And all this, what I'm describing here, is just one transaction. But of course, the question is, where do you find one of these small multifamily properties that you can afford? Which markets and which deals are best for you? How about after you close? How do you manage it? Optimize it. Keep scaling and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions. And luckily for you, they're going to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient, great strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. I'll see you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.